Hey, got a quick question for you. How old are you going to be when you pay your house off? If you listen to this show very much, you know, I'm obsessed with time. I'm also obsessed with age and how old people are. It's almost a meme at this point about how many times I've joked about how old AJ styles is, but the reality is this, we can help you get out of debt faster and with cheaper monthly payments and save with Conrad. And that might not be something you're thinking about right now, but check this testimonial out. It comes to us from Joseph in Houston, Texas. He says, I drive for work, so I have no time to be on the phone. The majority of communication came via text. No rush. I got back to Derek when I could on my time. You guys cut down my payoff date by eight years, even adding money to the loan and still making the payoff date eight years earlier. So what we're talking about is if you've got credit card debt, when's the best time to pay it off today, SaveWithConrad.com can help, but more importantly, cutting eight years off of your loan. I want you to ask yourself this question. How old am I when I pay my house off? It's kind of weird that we don't know the answer to that right off the top of our head. We hear people all the time say things like, oh, I've got six car payments left. How many house payments do you have left, bro? How old are you going to be? And how old are your kids going to be? What we're talking about is paying your house off before your kids go to college. We're talking about paying your house off before you plan to retire. Nobody wants to retire and hope that they can still make a house payment. Retire your debt and then retire. Retire your debt and then help your kids with college tuition so they can avoid student loans. And if you've got student loans, you know, you don't want to burden your kids with those. Let me help. Let me show you how to get out of debt faster and with cheaper monthly payments and the greatest tax deduction possible at SaveWithConrad.com. Now, as always, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. So find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention we're licensed in more than 40 states? What are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Hey, before we get started today, I wanted to mention that today's show is brought to you by our friends over at GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. And that, my friends, makes it easy for you to save money. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. That, my friends, makes it easy for you to save money. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you can save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com. That's GEICO.com. And we thank Geico for sponsoring this very special edition of Ask Eric Anything right here on 83 Weeks. New, new, new world order. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? It's just, I'm so good at scary. I, I, I really am. You know, I went to, right before I went to bed last night, I, I posted something on social media that said, I, I'm going to bed tonight knowing just how badly I'm going to kick tomorrow's ass. And I woke up this morning, got a few things done. got a couple positive emails. And I think today is already tapping out. It's great. I love and it's it. early. So not even, not even 8.45 a.m. And I'm already winning the first three rounds. I love this. I like when you can call your shot too the day before, like tomorrow is going to be a great day. Good for you. Well, guess what happens when you do that and you actually believe it. 
You speak you it into existence. The day, you approach the day with an entirely, di- entirely different perspective as opposed to getting up and going, oh, fuck, another day. I wonder what this one's going to be like. I've done them both. I prefer just to be on the offense. Let's uh, let's let you guys listening to the show be on the offense. We uh, we didn't ask Eric anything a few weeks ago, and it was so well received that we didn't get to even a quarter of the questions. So I thought, you know what? There's a lot of good meat on the bone, as I like to say. We're gonna circle back and do more of that today. By the way, you would have gotten this show early and ad free had you signed up over at adfreeshows.com. And if you haven't already heard, we're doing interactive events with all of our different co-hosts, from Eric Bischoff to Jeff Jarrett to Kurt Angle to Tony Schiavone, Jim Ross, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we've also sort of changed some things around here. Uh, right now, Tony Schiavone is going through week by week, examining everything that's happening in Jim Crockett promotions in 1986. Arn Anderson has taken it back to the very beginning. This past weekend, we talked about his first stop in the territories in Pensacola, working for Bob Armstrong. And we ended the story with him going to work for Bill Watts. And we're going to break it down month by month, his entire journey through the territories. We don't think something like that has happened very often in podcast land. And we're proud to bring it to you on Arn. We even just had a brand new guest over on Kurt Angle show. And as a rule, we don't have guests, but we had Randy Orton sort of out of character. You don't hear from Randy very much in that regard. So check that out. And the latest to the bunch. Well, it's a good old double J. And, uh, he has really been the talk of the internet the last few weeks with uh, him talking about getting fired by Vince McMahon, holding up Vince McMahon. And this week he's going to share his side of the story on the Owen Hart saga. Uh, but maybe the, the thing that we're not talking about enough and we're about to hit it into high gear starts next week, right here, Eric, you and I start breaking down the creation of the NWO and we do it in a format you and I've never done. Uh, we like to say here on the show, Eric, context is king. And next week, we're going to watch the Monday night raw that happened on May 27th, 1996. Now, why is that significant? We all remember that's the day that Scott Hall climbed down those stairs and changed wrestling forever on Monday nitro. But we want to go back and examine what did nitro look like before the NWO? What did Monday night raw look like before the NWO? And we know this is going to usher in the attitude era that people still talk about. But it didn't happen on the WWF. It happened on Nitro. This should be fun, Eric. It should be fun. And I like that we're taking a different angle on it. Last night on the After 83 Weeks um, YouTube show that I do with Christy Olson and George Hermosa and Steve Kaufman, um, Steve just kind of said, hey, did you ever hear that interview that Vince McMahon did on TSN where he talked about you padding the ratings with Nielsen like we were conspiring, you know, to beef up the ratings report to benefit Turner Broadcasting? It was an incredible piece, and I think it would it would serve us well to maybe uh, tap into that interview and and hear what Vince McMahon had to say in early 1998 about me and Turner uh, conspiring with Nielsen to pad the ratings. Fascinating. I think that would be an interesting part of that overall discussion. And you want to talk about a discussion. We should mention, I, I plugged ad free shows right at the top because you get all these topics and shows that we're talking about and teasing and promoting early and ad free, including the Jim Ross lost radio tapes, sort of the precursor to wrestling podcast was Jim Ross on WSB in Atlanta not just an Atlanta station, they could reach it. in I don't know, like a dozen different States. 
And we've just posted interviews with Bobby Heenan and Pauly dangerously from back in that day. So much more to come, including Randy Savage. People have been looking for these tapes for decades and we got them and they're up right now at adfreeshows.com. But I bring all of that up because there's another tape that we're going to play you and I. Dave Penzer actually had Nick Patrick on and Nick Patrick told his side of the story for the very first time about the, uh, shall we say controversial finish at Starcade 1997. The rumor in innuendo was that it was supposed to be a fast count. Well, I don't even think that's a rumor. It was supposed to be a fast count, but it didn't exactly happen that way. And Nick has an interesting take as the third man in the ring that night. And we're going to play it for Eric and let him give his response over at adfreeshows.com. But today it's all about you guys. What do you want to ask Eric? So let's jump right into it. Uh, we solicited questions over at 83 weeks on Twitter. If you'd like to participate in our show, that's the best place to do it. Uh, John Mooring wants to know, yo E man, you should pitch a wrestling SIM to an app developer, kind of like SIM city, but instead of growing a city, you grow a wrestling promotion hashtag ask Eric. When you do, can you put me in the game as a character? I'll even be a jobber. I'm proud of you. And that, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. I like the idea, a wrestling video game sort of a different approach, not necessarily just building matches, but growing a promotion. Do you think that could have legs, Eric? I actually pitched a project like that to WWE about five years ago. Wow. So I, I, I think it, I definitely think it has legs because that's the ultimate fantasy, right? Yeah. Um, the ultimate fantasy is to be able to build your own wrestling promotion and to become your own version of Vince McMahon or Tony Khan. And there is the technology is there. The creative is definitely there. The application obviously could be developed. It's not an inexpensive deal, but I actually pitched that idea. It may have been a little longer than five years ago. I'm trying to remember exactly. But it, it got pretty far up the food chain, but WWE was working with other developers at the time and it got kind of got lost in the shuffle, but it's actually a really cool idea. Here's a question that I know we're going to tackle in a different way in a few weeks, but let's just jump to it for Trevor. He wants to know what impact, if any, did Kevin Nash's drawing power in the WWF affect negotiations with him? Would you have been interested if not for the idea of the NWO? So just to add context to Trevor's question for a long time, people used to wave the flag that, oh, Kevin Nash is the uh, worst drawing champion in WWF history. And I think it even became a point of contention with Kevin Nash himself to the point where when they wanted to put him into the hall of fame, originally, he didn't want to go in as Kevin Nash. He wanted to go in as diesel, just as sort of a, a way to stick it to everybody who used to say, oh, he's the worst drawing champion in WWE history. The reality is the business was down, not just WWF business, all business in professional wrestling. So I don't know that that was necessarily fair, but it is an important question. Did that bother you or play into your decision-making at all? Or did you feel so strongly about the concept of the storyline that you just had to do it? Happy to answer that, Conrad. But before I do, just want to thank our friends again over at Geico Insurance. They can save you money. And Conrad, you're all about saving money. So go to geico.com, get a quote, and see how much money you can save at geico.com. The No, Kevin's stock value um, in WWE, I, I was not even aware of it. I didn't even think about it. It was not a data point for me. 
The idea was the idea I, f- I felt strongly in the idea and the premise of the story, the basic premise of the NWO story. Two guys who used to be with WCW were disrespected, didn't get the opportunities, went to WWF, became big stars, and came back to WCW to exact revenge on the company that failed to treat them the way they felt they should have been treated. That was the basic premise of the story. And once that premise crystallized in my mind, Kevin's performance or lack thereof, or the fact that he may have exceeded some people's expectations, none of those things mattered to me. Those data points did not even occur to me. Let's uh, let's keep it going. Friend of the show, Lauren over at adfreeshows.com wants to know what's a favorite or most obscure memory or story that you've wanted to share on 83 weeks, but haven't yet found the right opportunity to do so. It could be like an, there's only one story. I think that, you know, in the back of my mind, someday I'm going to, um, talk about time is not right yet for business reasons, not for personal reasons but for business reasons, because the story has pretty significant implications could have on other people, not on me, but on other people. And I, no pun intended, no pun yeah, intended. I wrestle with the <laughs> fact that I, I really want to discuss this story, but I have to consider other people sure, more than myself. So I'm, I'm hesitant beyond that. And it's not a, you know, it's not a sexy story. It's not, you know, it's not dirt necessarily. Um, but it's a significant story beyond that, man. I, I don't pull back. I don't, other than that one issue, I don't not tell any stories. I just don't have a lot of them. You know, that's when you and I first started doing this podcast, when we first started talking about doing this podcast before we actually did one, my biggest concern, you know, after listening to you and Bruce is, you know, Bruce is like, he's just got so many great stories because right. he spent so much time on the road and dealing with talent and being talent and being so close to Vince McMahon and, and the, the WWE hierarchy and being involved in so many amazing things. I thought, man, I can't do a pot. I can't compare with it because I don't have any stories. I have a perspective and I have, you know, a, a different you know, angle of attack because of the business side of things, as opposed to the talent side of things. But I never traveled on a road with people. I never went up and down the road in the back of a car, drinking a 12 pack of beer smoking weed and talking about the wrestling business. I never did any of those things. So I really don't have the depth of story material that guys like Arn and, and even Tony, uh, or Bruce JR have, um, so I, and the ones I do, I'm happy to talk about. I haven't held anything back. By the way, Lauren, I love your work. You rock girl. That's going to be a t-shirt now going Broadway podcast says, were there any other scenarios or storylines discussed with the NWO run and Hogan's reigns as champion for him to drop the belt to someone other than Luger or sting? If so, who, and what were they? Do you remember that ever being discussed? It was a big moment when Luger beat him at Nitro 100 and of course Sting at Starcade 97, but was there ever a time where you thought what if and it was somebody else? No. Not really. There there have may, may have been discussions, you know, 
some what if type discussions, but they would have been very casual and probably occurred, you know, maybe in meetings with me quite possibly, because that's the way creative was, you know, you'd sit in a room and it's like, we always say this, but it ends up not always being true. You know, have you ever heard the saying, there's no, there's no such thing as a bad idea. When you're, when you're sitting in a room riffing and trying to come up with great ideas and trying to put pieces together and take the basis of an, a basics of an idea and try to build on it so that it actually feels like it's something that would be worthwhile doing. That's what I consider riffing. And, you know, in that environment or in that spirit of just like, okay, let's just try to, let's start somewhere. Let's come up with some ideas and see where they go. Yeah. Something like that may have been discussed, but never seriously. Let's talk a little bit about, um, and this is something that we never expounded on the finger poke of doom. Tyler says in the finger poke of doom episode, you had stated that the plan with the two NWOs merging together in 99 was to have Goldberg feud with them and chase Hogan. Why did it never end up happening? Oh God. I don't know. Who knows? By then there was so much going on. Plans were changing situation changed behind the scenes. Business was changing. Um, budgets were changing everything. There was so much going on at the time, um, that it would be impossible for me to articulate accurately and honestly what may have been occurring. So, um, I'm going to just going to throw in the towel on this one and say, fuck, I don't know. Uh, here's one from Rajiv during your modeling days. Was there ever a weird product you modeled for, or you asked to do anything weird doing a shoot? What's your most interesting modeling story, Eric? No, nothing really. You know, there was a, when I first started, there were two photographers in Minneapolis that were high fashion photographers. And I know that sounds funny because people think Minneapolis, but Minneapolis used to do a lot of, a lot of work, right? Dayton Hudson corporation was based in, in, in Minneapolis, um, and there were a few other really, really high-end photographers. Jim Arnold was one who was a really, really great photographer I got to work with. Lori worked with him a lot more than I did. He was really good. And, you know, when you get a couple really successful, as the two photographers I'm referencing here, I don't remember that one of them was name was Dave. I don't remember the other guy's name. They were really well-respected, and they were kind of up and coming, and they were starting to do things with, you know, models in New York with GQ magazine and that type of thing. And they asked me to do what they refer to as a test, meaning, you know, as, as a, especially somebody that's really new in that industry, you have to put together a portfolio that shows a variety of different types of things you're capable of doing so that when you do get called in to audition for a job, you've got a portfolio portfolio that where you've done, you know, active wear, or you've done high fashion, or you've done, you know, whatever it is that you think you, you specialize in uh, or good at. And these guys wanted to shoot me in some really super high fashion stuff, like G cover of GQ type. Now keep in mind, this is back in the early eighties. Okay. And I, I agreed to do it because these photographers were so well regarded. And if you get in good with a photographer, the chances are you're going to get a lot of work. And these two were doing a lot of high end work. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And we went out to a location and, you know, up until that point, I was like jeans, t-shirts, you know, active wear kind of modeling for target and things like that. 
And these guys had a you know complete wardrobe of some stuff that I would have never, ever, ever worn in real life. And they had a makeup artist there that completely you know changed my entire look. And it was really cool. And I still have some of those photos. Maybe I'll share them with you and you can embarrass me with them someday when sure. I'm in the right mood. We can flash them up on the screen here on ad-free shows while we're doing this or something silly. But that was the closest I ever got to being... And I wasn't uncomfortable. Well, I was, but not in a you know awkward way. It was just like, wow, I would never wear this shit. And they had my hair all styled in a way that you know I wouldn't be caught dead wearing. But you know, looking back on it, it was pretty cool. Uh, here's one. Um, Lindsay wants to know whose idea was it to break the fourth wall and talking to the camera on the way to the ring. I remember seeing Buff Bagwell do it, Booker T do it. Do you remember the first guy you saw do it? I really don't. I really don't. Hey, all you go to geico.com yet? What's the hold up? You got a house, you got a car, you need to bundle them. You need to save. It's geico.com. Did you like um, it? And I don't know if I would consider that breaking, you know, it's a term breaking the fourth wall, right? People like to use that a lot, but I, I don't consider, you know, talent coming out to the ring and mugging for the camera any different than what we've seen in the NFL for decades and decades and decades. So I don't necessarily consider that breaking the fourth wall. Um, Michael Eldridge has a phenomenal question. Eric, pick your poison. Who would you rather work as their number two in a wrestling promotion? So I'm going to name the big boss, potential big boss, and you're going to be their right-hand man. You're going to be their number two. Here are your options. Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, or Vince Russo. Wow. It's like saying, would you rather get hit by a truck or fall off a 16 story building? The answer has got to be Jerry Jarrett, right? Well, by just process of elimination, yeah. you know, Russo gets eliminated immediately. Right. right. Now it's about the devil. I know versus the devil. I don't. Right. I, didn't work directly for Bill Watts, but I worked under Bill Watts, actually under Jim Ross, who was working under Bill Watts. So I was one generation removed. Um, and Jerry Jarrett. Oh man. I, I, I probably go. Fuck. Tough oh. question. I'm, I'm going to go Jerry Jarrett. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the devil. I know versus the devil. I don't, I'll take my bet on the ones I don't, the one I don't know that well, as far as working with him. Um, yeah, I'm going to go there. Would your answer have been any different if I threw Vince McMahon on the list? Yeah, no, I, I'd give that another run. Oh God. I can't imagine. No, but it's the challenge of it. It's look, I, I respect the hell out of Vince McMahon. Oh, nobody's arguing that, but dude, working there, I feel. Uh, no, but we, well, I mean, okay. Now we're talking about the reality of doing it yeah. versus, you know, this fantasy fest. Give me Jerry. Jarrett. You know, the reality of doing it. No, my ass will never find itself with any kind of a permanent <laughs> residence or even an extended stay Marriott reservation in Stamford, Connecticut. So that ain't fucking happening, but just, you know, hypothetically, 
you know, hypothetically, yeah, I, I mean, Vince is brilliant in many, in many ways he's oh, not, sure. but in some ways he really, really is. And he's such a unique individual. And, um, I, that challenge would be far more interesting to me than the challenge of trying to work with Bill Watts or Jerry Jarrett. That that's a different kind of challenge. One, you have to level up and the other, you have to level down. So, um, yeah, I, no, I'd jump at that. I, I think working for Vince would be level weird. I mean, you and I, and a few others, we, we need to start a little prayer circle every week for Bruce Pritchard. My goodness. Uh, yeah, does, again, I mean, really but now, now let's get, if, if that phone rang, you know, when we're done with this show and that opportunity was presented to me, <laughs> I would be super grateful and super elegant and super polite and super convinced that I was not leaving my home. Now, if we could do it virtually, hell yeah, cool. But that ain't real either. I, uh, I laughed when you said that phone rang and it was opportunity. I was like, oh, here we go. It's the hillbilly gym podcast. I know what this <laughs> looks like. Uh, Dustin wants to know if AEW asked you to do the same job that you had for WCW, would you do it? Or is that all in your rear view mirror? No, that's in my rear view mirror, man. I, 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 and it's not because I don't love the business and, and aspects of it. I miss, I desperately miss certain aspects of the business, but running a company is not one of them. Uh, here's one that's interesting to think about in hindsight. If Bill Shaw had remained Eric's boss instead of Harvey Schiller, would that have made any difference positive or negative in WCW? That is the question of 2021 thus far. That is a brilliant question. And it's a, it's a thought that crosses my mind occasionally throughout the year. And here's my real answer. There are always real answers. Here's my honest answer. Yes. Where I really, let me back up. One of the things that I loved about working with Bill Shaw was he was a mentor. Keep in mind, folks, I had never worked for a company that had more than probably 30 or 40 employees in my life, including the ones I owned prior to getting into the wrestling business. Right. I ran a landscape construction company that during the peak season from about April through November had mm, 30 or 40 full-time employees and maybe 30 or 40 part-time employees. Um, that was the closest I ever got to working in a corporate environment. And that was not a corporate environment. Right. <laughs> Trust me. Bill Shaw, why he recognized whatever he recognized in me also knew that I had zero experience in operating in any kind of a corporate environment, not the least of which being one that was a publicly held company and one of the biggest television and broadcast companies in the world at the time. And Bill knew that I would have a hard time navigating that environment. So he mentored me. One of the reasons and I've told the story before about, you know, the, the day that Bill Shaw had a meeting with me and a guy by the name of Harry Anderson, who at the time was, he wasn't the head of finance, but he was very, 
very close to it. Um, he may have been the controller at Turner Broadcasting. And when Bill and I had previously had a meeting about the forecast for the upcoming year, early in the year, Harry Anderson was a part of that discussion because I forecasted that we were going to make a profit. I'm not sure what year it was. It might've been 95, might've been probably 96. And in that meeting, Harry Anderson, you know, and Bill, Bill prepped me for that meeting. He knew that I had never been in a meeting like that before with someone at that level. He right. knew the language of the finance part of Turner broadcasting. Bill, Bill Shaw was the executive vice president of human resources. So he understood the politics and how to, and he was attempting to groom me to, to better understand how to play, not just the wrestling game, not just operating WCW as a business, but how to interact and relate to the people who were really controlling the purse, purse strings in, in WCW. And Bill spent a lot of time with me, attempted to, uh, because he didn't last long in that position nurturing me. And in that meeting with Harry Anderson, which, you know, normally is a very dry, you know, when you're having a finance meeting and talking about projections and, and all that and budgets, those tend to be a little bit dry. Um, at the end of that meeting, you know, I bet Harry Anderson a dollar that we'd turn a profit and, and Harry laughed and, and took that bet. And then I said, okay, and by the way, you have to get down on one knee and give that dollar to me in front of every employee in WCW. And he said, absolutely. I'm not afraid of that bet. And 12 months later, 11 months later, whatever it was, Harry Anderson was at a WCW Christmas party off-site in a Mexican restaurant, downtown Atlanta. And there probably was 50 or 60 of the office you know, people there that were able to attend. And Harry Anderson got down on one knee and handed me that dollar in front of every WCW employee. Wow. That, and it wasn't that I was right. It was the way that galvanized WCW, the offices, because these were people that had never gotten any respect and actually felt you know, unwanted within Turner Broadcasting. And to be able to help make that transition, that was Bill Shaw. That wasn't me. Bill Shaw set that up. And had Bill Shaw remained... Um, in charge of WCW, I think two things would have happened. I think the communication between WCW, when it was critical during the Time Warner and ultimately AOL um, acquisitions, the relationship between WCW and and Turner Broadcasting senior, 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 executive committee level senior management um, would have been much better. And I probably would not have made some of the crucial mistakes that I made in terms of challenging people that I should not have challenged. I probably would have been aware that Ted Turner was not in the same position that I thought he was while I was challenging said senior executive committee level people. Um, so I think it would have made a world. I would have matured much more quickly and, elegantly as a corporate executive. And I think the communication between the division and the corporate um, parent would have been much, much different and therefore better. So I think it would have made a world of difference. Yes. Take it from me. Easy. -E. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it could be a lot of hard work. 
know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. That's right, GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or rental insurance along with your auto policy, and it's a good thing too. You've already got so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Sounds like you were a real prick at times. No, I wasn't a prick. I was, I was, again, and this is the part, like, you know, context is king. We had a t-shirt for a while. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Probably still do. You got, you've got to understand or try to understand that take this kid, even though I was in my late thirties or forties experience wise, I was a kid, put him in charge of a company that had never make any money that had never made any money in its entire existence. And in fact, lost tens of millions of dollars in the process, flipping that company around and, and turning, you know, the tide on that, um, there were a lot of things I had going for me. And one of, one of them was I had a level of independence and confidence that when I really believed I was right, I could overcome a lot of the typical political hurdles that were put in front of me that were there previous to my taking that position. And to know that I had Bill Shaw who helped, would help me navigate those and ultimately, I had 100% confidence from Ted Turner himself. Ted would call me every Tuesday congratulating me on the success of Nitro. And he was giddy like a kid. He was more excited than I was, for God's sake. And knowing that I had that relationship, if and I didn't use it indiscriminately. I wasn't a bully. But I knew if there were idiots that were standing in front of me, or if they weren't idiots, they were all very smart people. That was stupid of me to say that. But if there were people who, because of their own agendas yes. or whatever it was, the fact that they just didn't like WCW getting in my way for reasons they should not have gotten in my way, I knew that I could push the envelope and fight and challenge and cajole and politic my way to a meeting with Ted. And if I was in front of Ted and I knew I was right and I did my research, I would win. That's not the same as being a prick. I was fighting for my company. Yeah, I was fighting for the people that work for me, not just talent. Talent was part of it, but we had a, what, 80, 90 employees in the office. I was fighting for them too. And I don't think fighting for what you believe in and fighting for what was working and fighting for what you knew what you were right in is necessarily being a prick. I think standing in the way of people who have those convictions and the experience of the resources and, and, and the proof of concept to continue moving forward with them. I think that's being a prick. And yeah, if I was faced with somebody who was challenging me just because of politics or their personal taste, because they just didn't like wrestling. Fuck. Yeah. Especially if I knew I had a Ted Turner card in my back pocket. <laughs> yeah. I was a little tough to deal with. If you were a jag off, you know, uh, we should make a t-shirt. You know, the old Nixon pose with the, the double piece. I, I am not a crook. We should have an Eric Bischoff likeness. I am not a prick just with the middle. So let's be no, I, I mean, I'm, Hey, being a, you know, I'm sure to the people on the other end of the equation, read guy Evans book. There's enough people in there that thought I was a prick. I'm sure I was to them. 
get what you deserve, bitches. I love you for that. That's what I was looking for. There he is. He's in there. Michael McLanahan wants to know, I've asked this question on a few threads, but I'm not sure which one Conrad will read for the show. This one, Michael, uh, what is Eric's opinion on wrestlers being allowed to have sponsors on their ring gear? Brock Lesnar brought some of that from his UFC sponsorship. When he came back from 2012 to 2014, of course, a lot of fans remember he had the, uh, the beef jerky sponsorship. He had the Jimmy John sponsorship. It's sort of a NASCAR thing. And it used to be a UFC thing. What do you think about that in the context of professional wrestling? Doesn't work. Doesn't work. You know, I think everybody that's paying any attention at all realizes that the largest percentage of revenue in a professional wrestling business model is the revenue that you derive from television licensing rights. So when a Fox network, for example, or a TNT network, as an example, or USA, as another example, agree to pay a producer like WWE or AEW hundreds of millions of dollars, you have to ask yourself, why do they do that? Well, they do that so that they have the ability to market the advertising space within those shows. That's how networks make money. And if you have, for example, uh, Slim Jim wouldn't be a good, good example. Let's, let's say uh, Randy Orton has a payday logo Reese, on his butt. Uh, and, a, and you a, a Reese's Pieces sponsorship. Yeah. Well, that's fine for Randy, but if Randy's wearing that gear and those logos on a show that has an Eminem Mars sponsorship attached, because that's who the network is making money from, that's a problem. Yeah. So, and even NASCAR, you know, you look at the NASCAR model, guess what? NASCAR gets a lot of that action that comes through NASCAR. They get a piece of that. So it's, it's not apples to apples comparing NASCAR to, to professional wrestling. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because the commercial ad time and the sponsorship. Now there may, and there wasn't WCW's case. We had the ability. um, It was a little bit different because the network actually owned the property. So it was a little easier for us, but um there was in programming sponsorship and there was commercial sponsorship and there was some latitude there. For example, when Jason Hervey and I were producing a lot of reality television programming unscripted, as they like to call it now unscripted, it makes it sound so much more sophisticated. Um, but when we were producing a lot of unscripted programming, there was a point in time in the early two thousands when product placement was something that was new. Yeah. Because reality television was new and all of a sudden, you know, you'd see people in reality shows opening up the refrigerator while they're having a conversation and lo and behold, there's a Coors light in there yeah. or a, whatever it is, it, you know, in there and the camera would happen to catch that. Or when you see somebody open up a laptop and, Oh, they're using an apple or, Oh, they're using a Hewlett Packard or, Oh, whatever. Um, there was a big business because that was new revenue. Nobody had ever, that was a new revenue stream for networks at the time. 
And nobody had really figured out how to integrate it into a contract. So it was kind of like the wild, wild west. And there were companies, product placement companies popping up all over Los Angeles and making boatloads of money until the networks went, whoa, wait a minute. We're not getting any of that action. And then before you knew it, over the course of a year or two, all of a sudden product placement clauses were existing in new contracts that hadn't previously existed because networks were realizing that there were product placements, for example, for a Coors Light while the network was trying to sell Miller Light. It was a conflict. So it evaporated. And then all product placement had to be approved by the network. And in order to approve it, they had to get a piece of it. So there you go long-winded, in-the-fucking-weeds answer, sorry, but I feel like it's important that people fully understand how the television industry works and therefore how it affects what they see on television. Here's something we've never been asked before. Luis Mendoza says, can you describe the WWE orientation process step-by-step this last run and get into specifics such as working with HR before you start, getting your access card, getting your email, working with a sponsor to train you in processing sheets, new employee orientation, etc. So really granular stuff, but can you tell us about WWE orientation, at least from your perspective a few years ago? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to go into that level of detail, not because it's not a great question. It is, but because it's just fucking boring. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the process is boring. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it was like, you know, the term you've heard it, it's been used and abused for too long, but you know, drinking fire out of a water hose or drinking water out of a fire hose. <laughs> Ooh, I went all Rodney Dangerfield on you there for been a long day. Um, look, I, you know, I showed up and I, I think the first week or so it was meeting everybody sitting down, having one-on-one meetings with the heads of various departments, kind of a get to know each other, like having coffee with, you know, 40 people in a given week, a meeting that would last 15, 20 minutes, sometimes a half an hour, depending on who it was and what the topic of conversation was just to kind of get oriented into kind of a who does what and how this process works format. I would say that was a good, probably lasted about two or three weeks just because everybody was busy. I was really busy. And so was everybody else. So coordinating schedules to meet everybody that I had to interface with um, took a while. So that was kind of a daily thing. Um, you know, I, I think my first day in, uh, someone came up from, from HR, got me set up with my computer, got me set up with my logins, you know, gave me all the information I need to be able to communicate, you know, in terms of intercompany stuff and emails and things like that. Um, similarly, you know, set me up with all my 401ks and all the other things that come along with being a new employee, um, all things related to HR. That process probably took a couple of days over the course of a week, you know, maybe not even a couple of days, maybe a total of about eight hours over the course of a week or 10 days. Um, and beyond that, you know, it was just a matter of getting to know people. Uh, getting to know, you know, I was inheriting a writer. My job was to oversee a staff of writers. So getting to know each and every one of them and trying to figure out their process. That was my biggest focus when I, you know, before I got there and really during the entire time I was there, because there was so much 
there was so much going on at that time. Uh, I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets here or stepping into ground. I shouldn't, but you know, remember this is when Fox was getting ready to premiere. The Fox deal had been consummated, you know, months and months and months before I got there and everybody was kind of preparing. When I got there in July, they had been preparing for the Fox launch for months before I got there. So and that was another part of it was me catching up to that process and understanding, you know, all of the things that had been put into place before me and what the timing of those initiatives were going to be and the rollout of the marketing and the branding and the personal appearances and all that stuff that kind of fell under my, my umbrella because I was in charge of that brand. So I had to learn and, and understand that the biggest challenge for me was that we knew everybody knew we were going to split the roster at some point at the draft and the launch, you know, we were going to have to publicly, you know, uh, expose, I guess is the lack of a better term. It's early for me. I haven't had enough coffee today, but reveal is a better way to say it, you know, where, you know, what the roster was going to be for each specific brand. That was hard because there was just a lot of indecision back and forth. Every week, there would be a meeting. Every week, we would have a discussion. Every week, we would leave that meeting with a pretty good idea of where we're at. And then the following week, it would all change again. So that was a constant flux. What made it harder for me, a lot harder for me, was the writing staff was also going to be split so that there would be dedicated writers for each show. Those decisions would change on a weekly basis all the way up until the point the show was launched. So my focus, my goal, and I still believe this to to this day is that there is a much better process to be had in the way wrestling is produced across the board, not just in WWE. There is a much better way. There is a formula that one could use to at least attempt to create a more coherent storyline and product. But the way wrestling had been produced, and I think probably still is, doesn't allow for that. It's hit or miss because there's no formula. There's an instinct, there's experience, there's knowledge, but there's no formula applied. And I, I don't, I think it's just like anything else that you want to really, really excel at. There is a formula to everything. And my goal was to create that formula in WWE, at least the framework for it, so that ideas could kind of go through a process that gave those ideas a much better chance of being successful than just let's try this, let's lay it on paper, and then the day of go, nah, I don't change my mind, I don't like that. That's not a process. That's that's an experiment. And the odds of a process being successful are much greater than an experiment being successful. And I think the way wrestling is produced today across the boards is much more closely aligned to an exper- a weekly experiment than it is a weekly process. Wow. That's going to get some fucking heat. $91,000. $91,000. That's how much Michael in North Carolina saved at SaveWithConrad.com. He left us a five-star review that said, I've had many bad experiences with buying and refinancing. 
But my experience with First Family was first class, easy, and overall a great experience. Derek and Jennifer are awesome. To be honest, I was skeptical that this process was going too smooth and anxiety levels rose waiting for something bad to happen. But we closed and I slept like a baby. It was nuts. Derek and the crew saved me $91,000 off the life of my new loan and cut my interest rate by almost half. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. First family mortgage. No, thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to the podcast and thanks for letting us save your family. 91,000 bucks. Now that's his number 91 grand. What's your number? You see, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much, if you can hear my voice and you have a 30 year loan, a second mortgage or a credit card debt, I guarantee I can save you cash. Find out how much right now for free. This is no cost, no obligation. And if we can help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. And at SaveWithConrad.com, you're not being rerouted overseas. You're talking to me and my family at First Family. It's SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payment for two months? How's that for a summer break from house payments? No payments in June or July. You're done until August 1st at SaveWithConrad.com. Let's get a little more. Michael wants to know, um, no, Jimmy wants to know, what would you do to make raw more watchable? The weekly product on that show is diabolical and hard to sit through. Is this a case of nothing changes until Vince isn't there? As it seems as if the show was written for one person. Just replay the same answer. I just gave you about process and formula. That's what it That's what it's going to take. Right. Particularly when you've got a three hour show for God's sake. It's that's that is so hard. You know, Mrs. B and I are rewatching game of Thrones right now. We yeah. watched it when it first came out and I don't think we even finished the series cause we get busy during certain times of year. We just quit watching television altogether. Really uh, usually during the summers and into the fall, I mean, we watch very little television once the weather gets nice. Cause just, we're, we're so busy. You know, we've got people coming in and out all summer long. It's 4th of July. We've literally the 4th of July is when majority of the people come and visit but, you know, starting, you know, we've got people, we've got family here now living with us and are going to be with us throughout the summer. We've got a celebrity baseball game that's taking, or softball game that's taking place here in Cody. You know, Hacksaw Jim Duggan's coming in. Ernest Cat Miller's coming in. Sonny Ono's coming in. You know, a bunch of former Atlanta Braves are coming in. Uh, Harrison Ford's coming in. And I'm having a big party at my, I don't think Harrison Ford's coming to my party, by the way. But, uh, well, you know, obviously not. Hacksaw and Ernest and Sonny Ono and a bunch of other people are. That's typical. And then after they leave, there's a whole new group of people coming in. So we just don't watch television um, during d- during the summer. But going back and watching Vikings right now, you know, there's a. F- I just I'm such a firm believer in structure and improving story through structure and process. Same thing. That I think that's what it's going to take. You could just replay my my answer from the previous question, and I think that's what it'll take. And I don't think it. Look, Vince McMahon, you, you, no one can question, deny, or challenge the fact that Vince is going to be go down as one of the most creative, not only storyline wise, um, but business wise, more than anything, people in, in, that's ever stepped foot in this industry or gotten anywhere near it. But everybody needs to evolve and 
because of the sheer volume, I've said this a thousand times, because of the sheer volume of the content that's being produced, not only in WWE, but even now in AEW, if you don't have a process that you have 100% confidence in because it's worked for you and you've fine-tuned it, you're just throwing shit up against the wall and hoping it sticks. And unfortunately, as much as I love and respect you know, so many people in WWE, including our buddy Bruce Pritchard and Vince McMahon, and an amazing staff of ultra-talented writers, guys like Ed Kosky that nobody really talks about, who is an amazing, amazing writer and just so smart. And there are so many others I'm not going to name here, um, but the process doesn't provide for the exploitation of the talent that's ready, willing, and quite able to produce great material. Friend of the show, Barat wants to know, do you think the fact that wrestling becoming so reliant on broadcast deals, like a lot of professional sports has played a role in the deterioration of storytelling as an art form? Again, man, just replay my first <laughs> The question that was a response to the previous question, the sheer volume. Yeah. Yes. The answer, the short answer, if you're in a hurry, yes, definitely without question, but you know, you got to go, okay, yes, but why, why is that true? If you don't ask the question, why in anything you're in any endeavor in life or situation you're faced with, you're probably going to come up with the wrong solution. The why of it is because wrestling to the, to the readers or the listeners question. Yes. WWE, AEW um, are, are very dependent on the revenue that's coming from television. And because they're reliant upon it, they're increasing the amount of content More content equals more money. Um, there's a reason why, you know, the Fox show on Friday night isn't a two hour show because you get more money for, or isn't a one hour show because you can get more money for a two hour show. So you need that revenue. But once you increase the volume, if you, if you don't improve the process and, and fine tune the formula, you're just cramming stuff in there. You're just constantly on a treadmill. And that's the best way to describe it. It's like if, if you've been training hard, if you've been working out and you're trying to get ready for a marathon, you just like to run and you, you're completely out of shape and you start out on a treadmill and you run a mile and a half and maybe it takes you, you know, 25 minutes or 20 minutes or, or whatever the case may be. And as you, you're more consistent, you work out more and more and more, you know, you get up so you can run a three and a half mile an hour pace on a treadmill for an hour. It's pretty good right? Just to stay in shape, burn calories, all that. But if all of a sudden one day you hit six miles an hour on that treadmill, you're going to fall off. Maybe not right away, but you're going to, you're going to get to the point where you can't keep up with the treadmill. And oh, well, let's kick it up to eight miles an hour. Well, you're only conditioned for three and a half miles an hour. And all of a sudden now you're required to go at eight miles an hour. You're going to fucking crash. And the same thing is kind of true with television. You know, you look at WWE when it used to be a one-hour show. Yeah. And because of Nitro, it became a two-hour show. Yeah. Now it's a three-hour show. They've increased the speed, but they haven't gotten shape. They haven't conditioned themselves to produce the same level of quality that they were producing with a one-hour show or even a two-hour show. 
They haven't conditioned themselves. And by conditioning themselves, I mean, develop a process and a formula that gives them a better opportunity to be successful with the stories that they're doing. So the, the answer to the question is yes, of course, being more dependent on television requires that you produce more content. But producing more content requires that you also evolve that other part of your business. You can't use the same gut feeling. Hmm, I don't know. This feels good to me. That works when you're producing X amount of content. Right. But when you're producing 5X, that doesn't work anymore. And that's what hasn't changed. Well, Eric, you're in a mood today. Maybe you should have went to Geico. They make saving money easy and they can help you bundle some policies to do so over at Geico.com. You know, the, uh, the what ifs are maybe one of my favorite things that we get to do here on the show. And, And here's a, what if about the Monday night war had WCW won the Monday night war and put the WWF out of business. What storylines could you have envisioned taking place? What talent in ring and behind the scenes would Eric have wanted to incorporate into WCW? So you've said before that you needed a better finish man. You would have loved to have worked with a Pat Patterson. So I can jump to that conclusion that Pat would have been backstage, but is there talent or storylines or angles or things that now that you owned the IP, you wouldn't necessarily be ripping it off. You're just making use of your own asset. What jumps to mind when you think about that? Uh, nothing jumps to mind. You know, that's a, that's a kind of a, what if, and I, and I'm, I, I like what ifs too, you know, it's fun to dig into those, but to, to answer a question like that in a format like this is impossible because it, it will require you and I sitting down and me pounding three or four beers and a gummy and just, you know, riff it. Yeah. And it's a process. Yeah. But you know, off the top of my head, as we sit here and are recording this podcast, Ah, oh, fuck. I don't know. I have to sit down and like I say, loosen up a little bit, get myself in that frame of mind and reflect back. And, but that I can't answer a question like that in this format. It's a good question. And I'd love to explore it someday, maybe in a longer form show. Um, but I, I couldn't honestly answer it here. Here's one you'll like Corey wants to know in your experience with WCW, who was the best and worst at having a sense of timing, whether in matches or promos, meaning Maybe you give a wrestler eight minutes for a match and they go way too long. Oh, I don't know. All of them. Uh, Scott Steiner. He was an offender. Yeah. There. Oh gosh. I mean, there were some people that you could absolutely bet on hitting their times. Some is probably a broader explanation or description than it should be. There was a small handful at the top of that list would be Steve Regal. Oh, he was on time. Every time on time. Every time. I love that. Not by not close every time, not within reason every time on the money every time. Um, there were others that if I could have figured out a way to plant a chip in the back of their head so that I could sit backstage with a remote control and start zapping them when we were getting close to, you know, match time, I would have, I would have done it. I, I can't really name names because there were so many of them, you know, it, you know, and they, look, it, 
they were getting caught up in the moment. You know, keep in mind to, again, context, and this is not an excuse. It should have never happened. There were very few professionals like Steve Regal in that regard. But when you're out there and the crowd is so into what you're doing and that energy and that emotion, and you just want to get a little bit more to this match and you lose a sense of timing. I understand how that happens, but that was, that was a big problem for a lot of people. Here's one. Why did Dixie Carter continue to use Vince Russo for creative in TNA? I, I can't answer that. Do you have a you guess? Know? He played to her ego or I mean, do you have a guess? No, look, Vince is a charming guy. There's no question about it. When I first met Vince Russo, the very first time in a restaurant, Brad Siegel wanted to, there was a point where Brad Siegel was up against the wall and you know, Brad's reaction was, okay, I'm going to bring Eric back and have him oversee Vince Russo. And Brad Siegel called me and said, would you at least go, you know, meet with this guy and see if he's somebody that you're, you could work with. And that was my first meeting with Vince. And uh, we actually met, met outside of Atlanta because I didn't want people to see it. I had my airplane uh, hangered in uh, just north of Atlanta, Kennesaw. And there was a restaurant right across the street from the airport where I kept my plane. And I had Vince meet me there. And my first reaction was, fuck, this guy's a great dude. He's, I can work with this guy. He's a charming son of a bitch. He's, and he's a good salesman. I just, it took me a couple months to realize there was nothing under the hood, but he's a charming dude. And I think Dixie being the nurturer that she is and was probably thought that she could find a way to make it work just like I did, I guess. Yeah. So she just stuck with it longer than I did. Thanks again for our friends over at Geico.com for bringing you this episode and for helping our listeners save real money. Uh, here's one from uh, Bryant. At any point during the height of Nitro, did you ever want to change the set design before 1999? You kept the same stage for so long. Was there any thought given to changing it before? So that's worth mentioning. Your Nitro set design was the same in 95, 96, 97, 98. And then of course in 99, we see the change. Was it just sort of branded so well, uh, or was there another reason that you guys stuck this stuck with the same design? Um, I try not to fix shit. That's working. That's broken. Yeah. 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 So that would, that would be my first reason for not wanting to do it. Yes. You know, to your point, Conrad, it was so well branded and yeah. it was working. Why in 96 or 97 would I want or 98? Why would I have wanted to change? I didn't want to change it in 1999. That was not my idea. That was when I was getting the Eric, you need to be more of a team player. You need to delegate. You can't run the whole thing by yourself. You need to let some other people make some decisions. Okay, Harvey, we got the cat's ass logo from Jay Haspin and Nick Lambros. I didn't want to do that. Right. I didn't see the need to change it. I think it was a mistake to change it. And not only that, when they did change it, and I, you know, I approved it. So when I changed it, um, it was less than, it wasn't better than, it wasn't even different than, it was less than. Big mistake. Hey, I got an idea. Let's change the Coca-Cola lo- logo. They <gasps> tried that and it didn't they work. They tried that. How'd that go? Not so well. Not so fucking well. It's common sense, folks. Common sense. Changing a set 
is not going to change a viewer's opinion of a show. Thank you. Let's be, let's be clear about that. Thank you. If, if they love the show, they love the show. If they love the characters, they love the characters. If they love the stories, they love the stories. And nobody gives a flying fuck what the stage looks like. Yeah, I, I know that every little bit helps. And, and I'm a big believer in things like the psychology of colors. Like if you're, a, if you're a nerd about marketing, you've probably seen, you know, there's a reason that red and yellow were used for Hulkamania and McDonald's and so and Burger King and so many other powerful big brands. But you also know that, you know, blue and blue is the world's favorite color and gray and, you know, evokes trust and, and red, you know, makes people angry or uncomfortable, whatever. So anyway, I'm saying all that to say we can get so granular that it just doesn't make a shit. I'll never forget a few years ago, we were talking about color schemes on a website and we're in like hour three on this. And I just said, Hey guys, uh, nobody's going to think, boy, I was thinking about applying for a loan here. But I really don't like this color scheme. I'm going to keep looking. Nobody that fucking shade of magenta. That, that shade of magenta makes me not trust these people. No, that, that we need to go to a lighter shade of magenta, folks. I do believe there is something <laughs> to it, but at the end of the day, it ain't the primary reason. <clears throat> Nobody's flipping through and is like, "Well, Raw's got a good match." But have you seen the Nitro set? It's like, it. It. I, I agree. Look, I think there is a there is a certain standard. You know, you sure. want the show to look big league. You want it to. You know, you don't want you want certain production values in the show. And I, you know, there's no question about that. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. We should go back to studio wrestling or wrestling in a fucking warehouse. That's not what I'm saying. But the overemphasis on sets and design and changing a set. Because, oh my God, if we change the set, you know, this is going to really improve the ratings of the show. You're fucking high. Right. It's not true. It's not true. I, w- I want to give you an aneurysm right here on the air. This is a great, oh, great. question. And just reading Can't it. fucking wait. Let's do that right now. <laughs> Ted says, what would have worked better, Eric? Hulk Hogan in the Horseman or Ric Flair in the NWO? Are you uh, kidding me? That made my brain hurt. You got to pick one. <laughs> Jesus. I, how long? 165. This is our 165th episode together. And I just melted your brain. Have you ever known me to be at a loss of words? No, but this is it. Great question, Ted. Market. Yeah. I mean, the answer is flair in the NWO. I can't imagine they go around, you know, Tully does his promo. Arn does his promo. Then Hogan, then flair. What? Or vice versa. We or, know something mean. Let's Gene. picture this. Let's picture this. Rick flair, <laughs> Rick, Rick flair walking around going too sweet. Woo. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I've seen Rick flair get his head shaved. I've seen him in an insane asylum. I've seen him actually buried in the desert. I've also seen him in drag. So I'm saying all that to say you put him through the ringer. What's a black and white t-shirt in the scheme of things. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We've had fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, Eric is not in the mood for our shenanigans today. Uh, John, no, G- I love shenanigans. They oh, just fuck shady shenanigans, brother. I love that. You love that. Listen, Conrad going all shady shenanigans on us. See, it infects you. It gets a hold of you. It shady shenanigans 
is somewhere in the back of your brain, in your subconscious, if you will. And you're going to find ways before you know it, it's going to be part of your vernacular. And you're going to go, wow, the fuck did that happen? And it's because Eric got in your head. I think it's, uh, I think it's parked right next to my COVID brain. Uh, John wants to know when you started the cost cutting measures, once you became executive producer, how much did you actually save the company in the first year? If you had to guess, oh, I couldn't guess. Um, the biggest savings was probably well, there were two, there were two areas that were the biggest one was from a production budget, from the production budget, budget standpoint, moving the shows to Disney, there was an economy of scale associated with that, yep. that ultimately was meaningful um travel was one that i attacked really aggressively because i knew how it was being abused and exploited i knew you know i was i was the c squad announcer that was about as threatening as a plastic potted plant um and people were not shy about you know bragging about how they were ripping off the travel department by ordering duplicate, sometimes triplicate tickets for, for one flight and then holding on to those tickets because they were as good as cash. Um, so that, you know, once I got an opportunity, I just went all in on that. That was the easiest thing to attack. And the first thing that I attacked, the rest of it, honestly, was more about making a point. You know, the story I tell people about me, you know, making all my directors and VPs go count pencils in their desk wasn't because I was trying to save money on pencils. I was trying to make a point. You know, you have to understand what your what resources you have and what resources you don't have. You can't manage your resources if you don't know what they are. Right. That was and and rather than just telling people that, I thought, fuck it, I'm going to drag them through it and prove a point. And it worked because people thought I was nuts. I have a meeting and you know, first thing in the morning and say, okay, I want every one of you to go into your offices, come back to me and tell me how many pencils you have in your desk, how many pens you have in your desk. Do you have staples? If so, how many? Do you have paper clips? If so, how many? And how many pads of paper do you have? And then come back and report to me. It was like, what the fuck? But then when I explained why, it was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Otherwise, I would have said what I wanted to say, and it would, they would have just, they would have heard it, and their heads would have bobbed, like, oh, okay, yeah, good, yeah, I'll do that. And then they would have walked out, and 15 minutes later, it would have mattered. I had to make an impression. So I went to an extreme to make an impression. But it didn't really save anybody any money. Travel and production expenses were probably the two big ticket items. Here's a question from Conrad in Huntsville. He wants to know, how do you save money? Ah, you bundle your policies, both home and auto at Geico.com. Duh. Let's talk about, uh, John's other question. Cause I think it's interesting and, and maybe you've already told the story, but I suspect there might be one other name you want to throw out there. Which Turner executive did you get the most satisfaction passing in the CNN building, knowing you turned around WCW as a competitor, as a business person, as an entrepreneur, as a, a hard charging young man, I'm sure you had your chest puffed out. Like I'm going to prove that motherfucker wrong. Not really. I didn't, that wasn't true. I know okay. that's people's perception of me. Well, you made it, you made it, but you made a guy get down on one knee and hand you a dollar in public. Yeah, but that was for fun. That that was fun. He thought it was fun. I thought it was fun. And it, as I said, at the beginning of this podcast, that was a really important move to kind of, you know, really raise the morale and the self-respect 
of the people that worked in WCW. Not me. I didn't give a fuck. I, I was entertained by it. I thought it was fun because it was done in the spirit of fun. But you are a competitor. You challenged Vince McMahon to a fight on pay-per-view. You used to give away the results. You famously, yeah, but that's you, different. you that's take, different. you take the bridge out of your mouth and put on a Viking helmet and try to fight wrestlers in your office. Like this that's not true. What was in nitro? That's not true. It's <laughs> <laughs> not true. <laughs> Absolutely not true. You need some but, fucking kratom. I'm trying to get you fired up and it ain't working. Go get your goddamn coffee. You know, I haven't had my kratom in a while. I know. I, should, I can tell. I should have done that this morning. Cause I, <laughs> you know, cause, cause kratom does get me, you know, it kind of gasses me up a little bit and I get a lot, a lot more fired up and aggressive in my responses. But sometimes I like to, you know, just be chill and have fun in this kind of a conversation and you don't, I don't always want to be that guy that's going off on a fucking tangent. We know? do. <clears throat> we want you to be him. All right. Next week. I promise. Fernando. No, next week. Okay. Yeah. You're shooting raw next week. That'll be fun. Fernando <laughs> wants to know what are Eric's thoughts on Bruce's fourth karate black belt hall of fame induction. Now Bruce hey, is hey. a four time, four time, four time, four time black belt hall of famer. It's bullshit. Eric. Come on. Hey. You know, if you've got the money and you can donate the money and you, you can get the plaque, donate the money and get the plaque. And you can call yourself a four-time black belt hall of fame champion. I have nothing. There's no, there's no shame in that game. Everybody does it to one degree or another. Go for it. Just, just for shits and giggles. When we get everybody together again, can we get you both in headgear and foot gear and gloves? And let's just do like a, an exhibition with some mats. I think that'd be absolutely. Fun. Just a little point. Absolutely. Yeah. I Uh, would love that. I've got, you know, I've got a, you know, a a bag in my garage and I still, you know, every once in a while when I'm feeling froggy, feisty, I'll I'll throw on a pair of sweats and I go out there and throw some kicks and punches on the bag just to make sure my shit still works at least a little bit. So yeah, I'm, I'm fully prepared. I even stretch out on a pretty regular basis. I even have some flexibility left, believe it. So yeah, hell yeah. We'll, we'll get Ernest to drive over from Atlanta. He'll be all's uh referee. This could be, he great. could be the referee. That'd yeah. be awesome. Yeah. I don't mean you and Ernest. We know how that ends. I'm just saying, we no, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> <laughs> you know, I used to work out with Ernest quite a bit for a while. Um, before he started working for WCW, I would go in on Saturdays because Ernest was Garrett's karate instructor. My son, Garrett got his black belt from Ernest Miller and I go in and watch Garrett's classes. And then when his classes were over, Ernest, myself, and, you know, five, six, seven other black belts with senior black belts would stick around and we'd all, you know, spar after those classes. And I, I, I worked out with Ernest, I don't know, six, eight, 10, 12 times, maybe Ernest was good. He was, his footwork was so good and he hit hard he hit hard. So no, I'm not going to, I wouldn't mess around with Ernest, but a four time hall of famer black belt. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. I've been whopping him upside his head. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's do another one here from Andrew. This is a great question. If you could choose any position with any of the current promotions, what position do you feel you could contribute the best at? Now, to be clear, you're not angling for a job. You're not pitching for a job. You're not lobbying for a job. Andrew asked the question, what do you think you would enjoy and be good at in wrestling today? 
I really believe, passionately believe, in my approach to creating a wrestling-specific story formula. I would love to see if I'm right. And if, if it were possible for me to, and I don't want to, I don't want to create the stories. That's not what I'm saying. I want to create a formula that gives everybody else's stories, a better chance of being successful. I've thought about it. I've read a ton. I've learned a ton since I left wrestling about story and characters and structure and formula, not just in TVs and movies, but I've read a lot about formula in stand-up comedy. I've read a lot about, I've taken classes, online classes about formula for writing comedy, not because I want to write comedy, not because I want to be a stand-up comic, but because I want to understand what works, what is proven successful for some of the most successful comedians in our lifetime, like Jerry Seinfeld, for example. What makes him different than everybody else? How does he do it? Why is he Jerry Seinfeld? And I read that book and it all comes down to formula and discipline, but formula is a big part of it. And, you know, going back to, this is how much I know I'm right. I don't say this very often, but I know that I know that I know that I'm right. When in 1996, I read a story, an interview with Dick Ebersol about how he was going to improve viewership mm-hmm. for the Olympics. I took, I went, wow, here's a very successful guy. He really understands this shit. What does he do? What does he know that I can use and apply to what I do? It's not the same. What he does and what I do are different but there are similarities in some respects. What are those parallels? What are those similarities? How can I take his, his formula and modify it to fit my challenges? That's why I know I'm right because I did it and it worked, but there's more, there's better ways. And there's so much to learn, even though it doesn't seem like, Jerry Seinfeld's formula for writing comedy would apply to wrestling, but it does elements of it. And when you can see the need that I think I can see, because fuck, I did it for a while and how wrestling is produced. And you see the holes and the missed opportunities. And you know that there are answers out there and there is a way to adapt and modify and include some of those formulas into what we do. It drives me fucking crazy that it's doable. Nobody's doing it, but it's fucking doable. Would I like to try that? Absolutely. For a short period of time, because once you prove that once you develop refine and improve that formula to the point where everybody feels good about it. I could evaporate off the face of the earth and that formula would still exist. That was my goal going into WWE. Never got to, never got to do it. Wasn't there long enough. I don't think the system, the culture, the chemistry that existed there and with me would have allowed it to happen. 
um, because it was, you know, a 50 mile an hour treadmill. And there were some cultural things there. Or no, I say cultural, but I mean just personalities there that would have gone, ah, well. But it's doable. Would I love to do that? Absolutely. But that's that'd be like a six-month stint. And I wouldn't be needed because the formula would live way beyond, kind of like changing the format from a one-hour tape format to a two-hour live format. Yeah. Wow, well, that shit fucking worked. And by the way, it still exists today. That's the kind of thing I mean. There are ways to do shit that will improve the overall product. Whatever idea you want to put in that blender, let's call my formula a blender. Whatever idea you put into that blender, it will come out a better idea. Maybe not the best idea, but it'll be better than the fucking wood if you just throw it up against the wall and hope it works and wait to see what the ratings are and the minute by minutes are so we can decide if it was a good idea or a bad idea. How fucking backwards is that? Sorry. I just, I'm very passionate about this because it's just, you know, I missed opportunity. There's nothing that pisses me off more than a missed opportunity because opportunities are really fucking hard to come by. They really, really are. Sometimes they fall in your lap. Sometimes you'll get lucky, but I don't like to get lucky. I don't like shit to fall in my lap. I like to figure it out. It takes me a long time sometimes because I'm not those, not the smartest guy in the world. I'm not, you know, I don't have a, a formal education, you know, outside of high school and five minutes of college. But I know how hard real opportunity is to come across and create. And when you have that opportunity to not think beyond the day-to-day process that you're already in and Try to figure out a better way to do something to me is a wasted opportunity. And I, I do, 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 <laughs> does drive me crazy. Even if it's not my opportunity, I hate to see other people miss opportunities. Did you forget yet? Come on. Geico.com. Alan Jackson wants to know what was Eric's experience like when he went to WrestleMania, he was there for 19, 20 and 21, which of those would have been his personal favorite. And does he have any standout memories behind the scenes from any of those shows? Was it 19 was in Seattle, right? Yep. 20 was an M- MSG. I'm going 19. Why was that? I don't know. You know, it just, I love Seattle. Yeah. The city. Um, what was the name of the, the, the venue in Seattle? Safeco where the Seahawks played Safeco field. Maybe. Yeah. Whatever it was, it was a really cool venue. And I watched it from the seat from this, you know, like everybody else, you know, I didn't have a suite. You know, I, I wanted to watch it like a fan and Jason Hervey was with me. He was working for Richard Scrooge at the time. Oh my gosh. What a story. And it was, Oh yeah. So. You know, Jason and I, obviously, this is before we really went into business together. It was actually one of the reasons why we went into the business together. And I was getting ready to go to Seattle, and Jason called me, and he was in a panic. He was just in a panic because the FBI had raided Hell South. Oh, and bad. they were doing interviews, and Richard Scrooge was, you know, lawyering up. And there was all kinds of shady shenanigans going on at Hell South. And Jason was in a panic because he he was really close to Richard. I mean, corporately and, and as a friend. And 
Jason didn't like the idea of feds crawling up his ass. So I said, I said he said, man, I don't know if they're going to hit my house and cut my house with a subpoena or I don't know. Fuck. I don't, I said, Jason, jump on a fucking plane and come out to Seattle. It's WrestleMania weekend. I'm going to be there by myself. Um, I don't have anything going on. I'm not part of the show. I'm just going to be there, fly out and we can hang. And that gets you out of Birmingham where all this was going down and you and I can hang and we can kind of talk through what your next moves can be, you know, whatever. So he did. And we did. And uh, we had a great time. I probably ate, I don't know, three or $4,000 worth of some of the best oysters I've ever eaten in my life. Cause you can eat a lot of oysters. I can't, I mean, oysters are not filling. You can empty your checkbook a long time before you fill your belly. When it comes to oysters, at least I can which says a lot for my checkbook. Sure. But uh, we had a great time and decided, you know, that it was time for J- Jason decided, I should say we decided, Jason decided he had to get out of Hell South. And we decided to put our heads together and start a production company. So the MSG was at 20. That's right. Staples Center for 21. So uh, Seattle, New York, LA. New York. The only thing I remember about New York is what I don't remember because our good brother, Jason, or excuse me, Bruce Pritchard got me so fucked up on absinthe that I think I slept through two days of my life. There you go. I'll never get back. We've all been there. Oh my God. I have never been. I have never in my life been that inebriated. What I don't understand is how I was able to function to the level I did. And I only know that I functioned because somehow I found my way back to my own room, which is mind boggling to me. I remember bouncing off the hallway walls like a freaking ping pong ball. How I found my room and the key to said room, mystery to me. And I went to bed, I fell asleep with my clothes on. Woke up a day and a half later. Yes. And I thought I picked up my phone and it was like, oh my God, I've missed 30 calls from my wife. Oh, that's not good. What what day is it? Oh my, how did I miss a day? How did this happen? And of course I call my wife and try to explain how I've been in New York at WrestleMania, but somehow not been able to answer my phone for a day and a half. Not good. And then Bruce, wait, wait, Mrs. B said you're up to Chady shenanigans. What's oh, see, it's <laughs> gotcha. She was, yeah, she was a little concerned. And then I said, I blamed it on Bruce. Of course. of course. Yeah. Fade the heat brother. She kind of believed me. And then she reluctantly believed me. She wanted to punish me is what she wanted to do. So she believed me, but she wanted to make me feel bad about it. Yeah. Which I deserved. Yeah. Completely deserved. And then about a week later, our good buddy, Bruce Pritchard decides to send another bottle of absinthe to my house. And of course, Mrs. B got the package. She opened it up. She saw us from Bruce. She said, is this the shit you were drinking? I said, yes. And she hid it on me to this day. While we may still have it, I have no idea where it is. Really? Nope. That's hilarious. Uh, Josh, this is a good shit with it. It came from Japan. It's got opium in it, by the way. This isn't the shit you buy now in a liquor store. 
Forget about that. You can't order it over a bar. This is a different product than the stuff that is available in the United States. This shit was laced with opium. I think probably illegal to ship too. something like that. You just, you just, it it was, it was, it was a ride. I've never been on and never want to go on again. Tune in next week where, uh, Eric will implicate Bruce Pritchard on many other federal crimes. Uh, Josh, there's no evidence. There is no (laughs) evidence. It is hearsay. It will not stand up in court. So Uh, Eros wants to know who is the cooler, Eric, Eric Bischoff, Eric young, or Eric Estrada. Eric Estrada is pretty cool. Well, define cool. What does cool mean to you? Well, I mean, I don't think those guys had brother love ship them dope in the mail. So, I mean, you're you kind of should be dope in the mail. Technically, <laughs> listen, if you're not going to drink the Kratom, I got to bring the Kratom out of you just naturally. So oh, yeah. oh, oh, Eric Estrada is way cooler than you, Eric. Let's just face facts. I don't know. Have you ever hung out with Eric young? Oh, you think he's cooler than you too? He's funny as fuck. Oh no. And I if don't... you think cool is funny, he's cooler than me by a mile. I don't he's know. Funny. I just feel he's like a any funny, funny dude. I feel like anywhere we go, people are going to remember Estrada from chips. And man, we're going to be popular in those senior centers. <laughs> I already am. Oh yeah. You're over. Like with old, old women love me. Young women I'm, too. I'm like over with our audience's mothers, some grandmothers. I'm over with them. You're like the milf hunter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Josh one, two, six, five says with the way blood and guts went down and WWE bringing back in your house, do you find that in a lot of ways, the older wrestling conventions are coming back because a lot of them are tried and true and actually work, or is it just nostalgia? I think to a degree, it's one of the same, you know, yeah. nostalgia works in wrestling. Once. It does. You can't, I mean, so, I don't think they want to see it every week. I think no. it has a shelf life. Yeah. It has a shelf life. You know, it's like when WWE, you know, does their legends reunions, you know, on raw or SmackDown once or twice a year, they always work. People always want to tune in, always get amazingly good ratings, but you don't want to see them every week. So I I think, especially with the wrestling audience more so than I think other forms of entertainment, you know, the wrestling fans look, how many podcasts do you have now? 16, 18, 20, seven. You know, all of them are legacy content. Yeah. You know, podcasts. I mean, the, and I'm not saying this to be funny, but the, the Conrad Thompson podcast network, I don't know, close to a million downloads a month or a week. Oh yeah. Yeah. So come on. Is anybody going to say nostalgia doesn't work? Of course it works in, in the right doses at the right time. Uh, here's one, uh, that we have never really discussed in long form that I know you have a great story about. I don't know how much you can share though. Rodney says, can you discuss what happened on the Australian tour? About what? With regard to what? I don't know your experience, paydays, promotion, talent. Oh, well, it, it all came about. Uh, trying to remember exactly how it came about the first call. I, it came through Rikishi, actually. Rikishi was working with an Australian promoter, and the Australian promoter wanted to bring a big show over with Hulk Hogan. 
that involved Hulk Hogan. So Rikishi reached out to me, had a meeting. Now, Rikishi wasn't there, but I had a meeting at um, William Morris's, the, the, the agency, William Morris. I was represented by them at the time. And we had a meeting, and the meeting went well. And then uh, I followed up with the promoter. I brought in an attorney, Scott Hervey, Jason's brother, to kind of handle the legal side of it. We developed the contract. I obviously talked to Hulk. He was all about it. And I worked out the finances with the promoter, find out how much money they had to work with and all of that. And they were a good promoter. They were good promoters. They had promoted the Rolling Stones and a couple other big rock and roll tours in, in Australia and had been very successful promoters for a long, long time. Had great relationships with some of the best venues in Australia, all that good shit. So we were able to check all those boxes. They had cash. They, they, they were well-funded. They could afford to, to do what they wanted to do. So started with Hulk, got him on board. Uh, Rick was next. Uh, and, and that was at a time when, you know, I hadn't really kind of reestablished my relationship with Rick after our little kerfluffle in WWE. So, um, so reaching out to Rick was, you know, interesting, but it went really well right off the bat. You know, then it was just a matter of filling in the blanks and putting together, you know, the card, which was not hard to do. Everybody was excited. You know, wrestling in Australia is fun. I mean, touring Australia is, it's a blast. And it's, there's great audiences over there. So every, it wasn't hard to get talent at all. Payoffs are good for everybody. Everybody got flown over first class, first class hotels, first class airfare. Carpet was rolled out for everybody. It was That end of it was really good. I think... The downside of it, business-wise, was that the venues that the promoter wanted to use were too big and too expensive. The promoter had greater expectations than he should have had for the turnout. He overestimated you know, who would turn out for that, that event. And the event did well. I don't recall the attendance, but you know, we're probably in the 15,000, 20,000, I'm guessing, could be wrong, could be more than that, could be less than that, but it was in that area. So the tours did well by any reasonable standard, but I think the promoters really expected they would have WWE level of success. And that just wasn't practical without the television to support it. Goes back to TV, folks, always goes back to TV. And without the television to promote the tour and <clears throat> establish the storylines and build the anticipation the tour did well, but not as well as the promoters had hoped for. So they ended up losing money. James wants to know how was Nick Dinsmore, AKA Eugene to work with. And I'm happy to answer that. But before I do, I also want to thank our friends over at Geico for helping our listeners save money. Go to Geico.com and find out how much money you can save. Oh, I was, God, he was the best. Easy contributed, came up with ideas, executed, fun. He was the best. I, I love Nick. He's a great dude. I haven't seen him now in a couple of years. He actually put on a, uh, a live event. He lives in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I heard he was having an event. I said, Nick, I know you're not asking. and I'm not expecting a payday. I don't even want a payday, but I will drive out from Cody to Sioux Falls if you want to advertise me. Just that's how much I think of Nick. Just wanted to help support him. So he said, sure. And I went out and uh, I drove from Cody to Sioux Falls, which is 
about a 10 or 12 hour drive. Did his show, had an absolute blast and came home. I wouldn't have done that if I didn't have a lot of respect and affection for you. Correct. Francis wants to know, did you enjoy the American males theme song? And did you ever have any other favorite themes that you would like apart that you enjoyed apart from your own? So uh, first of all, American males, what'd you think of that? Hum it for me. Hum it for me, Conrad. How'd that that tune go? Why don't we just play it? Because people get really excited about this. Come on, Eric. That's a good beat. I like the guitar. Yeah, it's pretty good. Wait till you hear the chorus. You're going to love it. Oh, the build. Building well. Somewhere Scotty Riggs is jamming out. American males. American males. American males. Come on. Oh, my God. That chorus is fucking horrible. Well, no, you got to hear the lyrics, though. Here we go. When you say that. the lyrics of this this tune and i can't remember the words now but it's something about if you see them coming you better run for cover ladies you don't need a weekend lover what the fuck does that mean that's jimmy hart he wrote it but it's just a shit rhymes but it makes no sense yeah it's uh, not relative to the character if i would imagine the american males were looking for weekend lovers probably uh, every monday night but don't you think I like, um, if they want to talk to you, you better not listen. You might wind up in critical condition. <laughs> no, that's that'll get you laid. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of, you know, I've noticed that, you know, as, as I drive around here in Cody, Wyoming, you know, home of the Cody night rodeo five, actually seven nights a week, starting on June 5th, all the way up to September 1st, by the way, um, as I drive around here in my 95 GMC 2500 pickup truck, I That's call a chick it my magnet. ranch truck. That's a chick magnet right there. And I got my dog in my truck and I drive around and I listen to local radio. And every once in a while you hear these songs, you know, rock classics from the nineties, you know, eighties sometimes. And you listen to the words of those songs and they're, you know, a lot of those songs were written by the, the groups that were performing them so that they, when they went to concerts, they had a lot of fun, right? There was a lot of seductive yeah, lyrics yeah, and suggestions in those songs, which I'm sure paid huge dividends sure. backstage. Um, this is not a song that would work in that regard. This would actually make women go. I would think, wait a minute. If I talk to them, I'm going to end up in critical condition. Well, fuck that. I'm going somewhere else. This is a silly ass song. I know it's got a, you know, David Lee Roth kind of a Van Halen vibe to it, but the lyrics, the chorus is fucking horrible. I mean, that's American nails. I mean, I'm like, God, that sounds like something that would be out of a kid's cartoon. Okay. So give us your, I mean, let's answer the question, Eric. What are your favorite songs? I can't remember shit this long. You pollute my fucking mind with music like this. And you try to expect me to remember what the question was. 
I'm sorry. Let me come up behind you and hit you in the head with a five pound fucking hammer and then say, oh, Conrad, what were you thinking about right before I hit you in the head with a fucking hammer? Same thing. What was the question? I'm sorry. What are your favorite WCW theme songs, Danny? Jimi Hendrix, Voodoo Child. Uh, come on. Give me a, a, a real WCW one. Not a licensed song. Oh, an original. Uh, none of them really stick out of my mind. There was a sameness to them all. Same people writing, producing, same, same. And it's not just, it's not a knock on anybody that produced the music, but same thing is true in WWE and everywhere else you go. You have the same people doing the same things. They're going to sound, it's going to sound the same kind of way. You know, you, no matter who you are, what you do in any line of work, you use the same people to do the same things and you're going to get similar results every time. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes when it comes to things like music, not so good. You got any other ones at all? I mean, what about Harlem heat? You're going to sit here and deny that Harlem heat didn't have a fucking banger. Cause we all know I, maybe they did. I don't remember it. Let's hear it. Jesus Christ. This is peak 83 moments right here. 83 weeks. Listen to that though. It's pretty good. It is good. Because it creates a feeling. It puts you in the mood. It it connects you to the talent. That is great music. Great music. I mean, the Goldberg one worked. The NWO. I don't remember that one either. I don't remember that one either. Let's play that one one more time. Just for old time's sake. This one worked. Well, yeah, but that wasn't original music either. We stole that. That was out of the Turner Music Library. Well, so was the Harlem Heat one. Oh, well then, okay, yeah. Then the, I didn't want to say the NWO music because you busted my balls on Jimi Hendrix. That was licensed music, and I get that. But the NWO music was also licensed music, just out of our own catalog. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, where are you at on the Hulk Hogan theme? We never talked about that. American Made. You remember that I, one? You know, I think in the time that it came out, it was pretty good. You know, it was, it worked in that era, um, but it got tired. I like the intro. I like it. The guitar moves me. I'm feeling it. One of the only serious arguments I ever had with Cody Rhodes was about this song. He contends this is better than Rick Derringer's Real American. And I'm like, dude, that's the worst take of all wrestling takes right there. I thought about unfriending him. No, I, I kind of dig it. Again, in the context of the time, it certainly worked. wouldn't work today. There'd be all kinds of people protesting. That's what we need to do. We need to go through the whole fucking library one day and make you listen to them all. Oh, you know, I, 165 episodes, 164 and a half, maybe. And I thought, you know, we'd finally developed this relationship where he didn't <laughs> derive in pleasure out of torturing me. I'll never change, Eric. Jeez. Every time I think we've moved on, it comes back. Yeah. Hey, did you go to Geico yet? Get a quick quote. See how much you can save for free at Geico.com. Mike wants to know who would win in a bar fight. 
Scott Norton, Scott Steiner, or Paul Orndorff? I think, I don't think, look, in their primes, let's talk about guys in their primes. I think it would be hard for anybody to be, I, I think Scott Norton and Scott Steiner would be something that would be worth watching or paying money to watch. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going Scott Steiner on that one. Love you, Scott Norton. I could be wrong. Oh, I'm going Scott Norton. Norton was an amazingly powerful person. So was Scott Steiner, not as strong as Norton, probably possibly, but he had the wrestling background. Behind. There you go. But, That's where you're but going. his, his, yeah. The amateur ba- background, um, that Scott Steiner had would have, and he wasn't just, he didn't just have an amateur wrestling background for God's sake. He was really fucking good at it at the highest level college. So I'd go with Steiner. Uh, wrestling ace wants to know what are five things you've learned from being a producer? Well, five. Wow. You learn something new every day. So that's, it's, it's, Oh, what have I learned? I'll just pick one. I can't think of five things. Sure. There's too many things and let's kind of prioritize them. Um, not getting married to one way of doing things. Yeah. Not getting married to one idea. You can be passionate about an idea, but if you're so rigid in the way you approach it that you don't listen to or explore other possibilities, you, you, you are narrowing your opportunity for success. Here's a fun one. Cause I didn't know this was a thing. Andrew wants to know, have you been on either of Wyoming's two escalators? Apparently there's two escalators in your whole state. How about nope. that for a random fact? I don't even know where they are. Yeah. They're not at your I don't house. think I've ever seen one. They must be in Cheyenne cause that's the state capital. So I'm sure there's an escalator. I'm not sure, but I would guess there's one in Cheyenne and there, maybe there's one in Laramie. Yep. Um, that would be the other, cause that's a college town, but beyond that. Nope. Jeff Stewart wants to know, you've said you thought Halloween havoc was WCW's premier event, but a lot of fans think Starcade was the premier event. Most wrestling fans know that if they're going to WrestleMania, that's the top show of the year. Do you think it hurt WCW that fans didn't know what the biggest event actually was? No, I don't think so either. No. I mean, what was there a, uh, a plan or a hope that you could eventually sort of build the, the Halloween havoc brand, if you will, to become a WrestleMania, or did you realize it's already a household name? We're not going to be able to ever catch that. No, I mean, I, it was a household. I mean, Halloween havoc existed, you know, while I was a C squad announcer. Yeah. So I didn't create it, but I just felt, look, Halloween Havoc took place in October. There wasn't a lot of high-profile pay-per-views to compete with, tentpole pay-per-views to compete with in October. There was with WrestleMania, obviously. There was with Royal Rumble. But October provided a unique opportunity with, with respect to timing. Also. Christmas, I've all, you know, I always think about the money, man. you know, Starcade at the end of December when yep. everybody's spending money on Christmas gifts and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it can be a, a challenging month to produce 
what you want to be your largest pay-per-view because you're competing with, it all comes down to dollars. You're competing with Christmas spending and other things going on in people's lives over the holidays. So for that reason, I thought October was positioned just because of the time of year to be a more profitable pay-per-view than Starcade. Uh, here's one that, uh, you're gonna have to think about. Albert wants to know, let's spread some kindness, Eric. What do you admire about Dave Meltzer? Oh, this is going to take me just a minute. Not because I have to search my mind, but because to get the words from my head to my fucking microphone is a bit of a challenge. Um, look, I, I, th- I think Dave is a hot mess when it comes to accuracy. I, I think that Dave has been one of the big, you know, I hate the term Mark, by the way, you know, when it's used to, de- to define a wrestling fan, yeah, you know, because what, a, you know, the, the, the insider term, the way insiders or those who wish they were insiders use the term is a derogatory way of describing a super wrestling fan. I want super wrestling fans. If you're in the business of, of being a professional wrestler, you want your fans to be super passionate about you. So I think to call people who are really, really just dedicated fans, Marks is so wrong. Moreover, I don't think it applies. I think a Mark, Mark is a term that comes, you know, from the con game. Con artists, you know, use the term mark, and it probably goes back to the days of pickpockets, where you look at somebody, if you're a pickpocket, and you look at somebody that's not paying attention or is an easy target, which is really what the term means, is, is, is mark means, is target, to exploit or take advantage of. I think Dave Meltzer is one of the biggest marks in the history of the industry. And you ask why? I know you haven't, but I'm assuming you will. Yeah. And I'm sure our listeners, well, why would he say that? Why is Dave Meltzer a mark? Because for years, I think any reasonable person that has been in the industry or even on the periphery of it realizes after all these years that so many talents knew that Dave Meltzer was such a super fan and wanted proximity and wanted credibility and wanted to be, you know, he couldn't really be in the wrestling business, but by putting out a newsletter or a dirt sheet, it would bring him a little bit closer. And, and he was successful by the way, his, his newsletter, I won't even call it a dirt sheet because I'm not trying to be cute or funny or entertaining here. That newsletter proliferated and he was because he did it before anybody else really the way he was doing it. And then talent, knowing and recognizing what Dave Belser really is, which is a wannabe, started feeding him information that would benefit them because they knew Dave would just report it as fact, when indeed most of the time it wasn't. And people were doing it either to rib Meltzer because they knew he'd write this stuff or to rib somebody else in the company they were working for because they knew if they fed it to him, he'd be dumb enough to write it, repeat it, or they would feed him stuff that would benefit them politically or 
Perhaps they would feed himself so Dave wouldn't write bad things about their matches. Either way, these people were all using Dave, and Dave was using them. They, it was a mutual usage agreement, if you will, not on paper, but in, in, in practicality, um, because Dave is a mark for himself. And, you know, unfortunately, in my opinion, he is the STD of the professional wrestling business. Eric, Eric, the question was, can you give a compliment? I did just give a compliment. But what is all this other shit? It's all part of it. <laughs> so my, I ended my compliment by saying you're an STD. Like, what the fuck? Hey, well, no, he is an STD because of the way he did it. But, okay, here, let's get back to the compliment part. He's made a lot of money doing it. Oh, God. No, what's wrong with that compliment? He was successful in spreading bullshit and convincing people that he knew what he was talking about. <sighs> Politicians do it. A lot of people do it. He made a lot of money. It's hard to make a lot of money. Well, and he made a lot of money. He's been successful. He's been doing it for a long time. That's that's a compliment. It's as close as I can get, brother. You're mean. I'm uh, not mean. I'm being honest. What well, do you I mean, want me to say? You've made a bunch He's of a money. Good looking guy. You, you fucking dapper. He knows how to pick up after himself. He's well, a nice, those things are obviously not true. Well, here's some. He's a good dad. I don't know that. I do. He's a nice All man. Right, then he, you give him a compliment. Don't a ask kid. me to compliment him on his fathering of parents and skills. I don't fucking know if he's a good father or not. He's a he's a dedicated worker. He's missed that, no, he's missed no days of work. I don't think he's missed an, an issue in thirty years. He writes more words about the industry than anybody for decades. <laughs> okay. Are you going to go there? Well, he's, he's written more words. Yeah. We'll try to throw in a fucking comma every once in a while, Jeez. you know, grammar shit matters. Just because you pile a bunch of words onto a fucking newsletter, and brag about it. Doesn't mean that the words have any value, especially if they're run on fucking sentences that make no sense. You read some of this shit to me on a regular basis. Honest to God, I get a case of fucking vertigo trying to figure out what he's talking about. 90% of the, the time, the question was, it you- makes no sense because he doesn't know how to fucking write. He's a journalist. He's a cosplay journalist who doesn't know how to use a comma or structure a sentence for god's sake that coffee's an hour and a half too late god damn no it. shit it is just now <laughs> kicking in let's just crash the whole front end of the show and start from right now this is going to be a 20 minute podcast but it'll be the best 20 minutes of anybody's life this week it was supposed to be a compliment it was a compliment he's made a lot of money doing it and i'll even throw in he's a hard worker he is thank you I, I i guarantee it yeah. Yes. It's obvious. I don't have to guarantee it. It's obvious. That's it. That's as far as I'm going. Okay. We're fine with that. Uh, will says, what are your thoughts on AEW returning to indoor touring too soon or good idea? And what do you think Vince thinks about them beating WWE to the punch? Uh, I don't think he, I don't think Vince cares. I know. I know wrestling fans like to think that there's this battle between AEW and WWE. I'm here to tell you. And I'm not, I'm not in WWE offices, so I'm going to suggest that based on my experience and with the relationships I have with people that are in WWE, the very fact that I've made appearances on AEW, made an appearance on AEW a month before they inducted me into the Hall of Fame, suggests to me that they really don't care. Are they aware? Sure. Is Vince McMahon walking around kicking people in the ass? God damn it, how do they beat us to the punch? 
I know people like to think that that's the case because people deep down inside, they want another wrestling war, but it isn't. It's just not. No matter how much people want to pretend it is, it's cosplay, folks. WWE is on a different planet than AEW right now. That's because AEW is about 24 months old or so. WWE's been around for decades and decades and decades. A lot of catching up to do, folks. There is no war. There is no chapped ass. There is no angst or anxiety from WWE, in my opinion, when it comes to AEW. Tommy wants to know, why was there never a WCW tribute like ECW had with One Night Stand? Do you feel there is enough interest to have one or are the main players too old and beaten up for one last ride? So last first, yeah, too late for a WCW one night stand, but it is a good question. We could have a, we could have a WCW one night sleepover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Order some fucking pizza, have a kegger, a couple 50 year old strippers would be fun. You just go find but, the ladies from uh miss NWO. There you go. Yeah. Come on now. That wouldn't be a bad way to spend a Saturday night, but yeah. Right, here's WCW what, reunion. In order for you to do that though, you'd have to find that bottle of absinthe that Mrs. B had 20 years nope. ago. Nope. Chat me nope. up though. There's no telling what I would do. You know, I can drink 10, 12, 14 beers, believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. Well, may, maybe not anymore. Oh yeah, you can. <laughs> right. I've emptied out that fridge. Down. <laughs> Down in the Conrad Thompson man cave. That that uh that garage fridge, it had a den in it the other day. You know what? Every time I walk by that thing, it starts to quiver. Yeah. Oh, he's back. <laughs> but and and here's the deal. I whatever ridiculous amounts of beer I'll drink, the worst thing that's gonna happen is I'm gonna get tired and fall asleep. Right. That's it. I don't get crazy. I don't get obnoxious. I mean, I, sometimes I think I'm funnier than I am and I laugh at my own shit and everybody else is going fuck, go to bed, but I don't get like angry, violent or challenging. I don't, I'm, I'm about as calm of a drinker or boring drunk as you, you will find. Um, but that absent thing that's different. That could bring out some evil shit that I would rather not visit. So we're going to leave that alone. What do you think though? 2003, could you have done a WCW one night stand on the WWF side of things? That would have hit. Yeah, you could have. Yeah. 2003, you could have, but every year that went by, it got exponentially tougher because people were just the guys that you would want to see were either already back in WWE or were out of the business or weren't ready to come back at that time. So it would have been tough. Craig has an interesting question and we certainly had some of this, but it could have been bigger. Had he been up for it? Would there have been money in the brain being a baby face leading the Heenan family against the NWO in 96. I can hear his promos. Now I told you for years that Hogan was an egomaniac. I think the promos would have been gold. So he did some of that on commentary, uh, but him leading a faction to take on the NWO and being a mouthpiece, you know, for the the crusade and Hulkamania that we saw 10 years before that could have been pretty cool. It's an awesome idea. Yeah. You know, the big, the big hurdle there is if he would have been up for it. Right. Um, and, and he might have been, I'm not suggesting that he off, you know, just off the top of my head that he would have said no, or he wouldn't have been into it. 
Um, but man, that's a compelling idea. That's one that makes me drift off and think, you know, I, as you were saying it to me, I was like, wow, that picture's starting to, I can actually see that in my own head. I can see it. Yeah. That would have been pretty fucking cool. Really fucking cool. The more I think about it, the more excited I get about it. We got to think about that one day. That would be fucking awesome. Because we- Bobby would have been, you know, the backstory was there to the, to the listeners or the listeners point or to yours. The backstory was there. Yeah. The anti Hogan sentiment was there from day one. When Hogan came in, that was the role that Bobby played. Um, so and it had existed prior to either Heenan or Hulk Hogan coming to WCW. Right. So that God dang it. I wish I would have thought of that. It's a great idea. And what's fun too, is you think about the Heenan family itself, of course you had Andre in there. Well, you could have had big show be, you know, the son of Andre that could have worked. Uh, you had, uh, the barbarian. So that would have been easy. And you starts to realize when you, when you name those names, you're like, wait a minute, this would have been a better version of the dungeon of doom, you know? Yeah. Without the goofiness. Yeah. And, and keep it serious. So it would have been in line with the NWO story and not some goofy shit like the dungeon of doom was this could have been, yeah. And I would have been, I think, you know, I'm thinking about this is actually, this is the kind of shit that gets to be really excited. Cause that, that's a, what if that's so beautiful that I can see it in my head actually playing out. But if you had, you know, if you had Bobby and I would be careful not to populate it with too many people that were from the Heenan family previously. So yeah. it didn't look like a complete regurgitation. Yeah. But, um, the premise is already, it's a built-in premise, a built-in backstory. Be a little more selective about how you, you know, like the giant would have made sense. Could have made sense. As long as we didn't try to make him look like Andre, the giant, you know, um, but with kind of update those characters within the Heenan family to be a little more current and relevant. Yeah. Could have been badass. I mean, I can see, can you imagine Ric Flair and Bobby Heenan doing promos together? Rick rude comes back and he doesn't go to the NWO or he teases like he's going to, but he really comes back home to the Heenan family. He outsmarted him. That could have been cool. Man. Fucking great idea, man. Where was this? Where was this listener when, when, when I really needed him? Yeah. We, we owe that guy some shirts. Great, oh, co- shit. great topic. Uh, Chris Carpenter wants to know, what are your thoughts on Peacock censoring old WWE footage? This is a hard one because it'll come back around to culture and politics. And I am committed to staying away from that. It is part and parcel, in my opinion, to a much broader problem in our society and our culture. I'm glad I'm not a stand-up comedian. Can't oh, tell God. a funny joke anymore. Yeah, you know, right. I felt bad for you know you and I both like him a lot, but Dan Soder, friend of the show, who does hands down the best Macho Man impression ever, he tried to make a joke and it didn't land at the end of that A and E biography on Savage that we've just crucified for a few weeks here on the show. But in the context of being on stage as a stand-up comedian, the joke would have hit, but in the context of, Hey, we're going to wind this thing down and, and play some sad music. It missed. And he took some shit online for it. And, and I understood in the context of he is a stand-up comedian. Yeah. But he didn't know where that's going to wind up in the show and, and how it's going to be framed. And yeah, to your point, I would not want to be a stand-up comedian in 2021. 
All right, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take your comment a step further. I knew Randy pretty well. Yeah. On a professional level and on a personal level. I didn't know him better than anybody else. Right. I didn't know him as well as some people do. So I'm not trying to position myself as an authority here. I'm giving you my honest opinion about somebody who is no longer with us. But I am and when I saw the heat that Dan was getting, yeah. I was like, what the fuck? Why are people getting upset over that? Because in my mind, when I heard him doing it, I laughed. Yeah. Not because it was the funniest shit in the world. Not because it was such a great impression. I laughed because the Randy Savage I know would have laughed right along with me. Yeah. He would have approved that if Randy Savage had editorial control over that biography, that part would have gotten moved to the front of the show. <laughs> so for all of you who felt the need to, what do they, what do they call that? When you, when you, uh, try to cancel Dan virtue signal. Yeah. 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 You fucking mindless dweebs. That's all you got going is you're trying to find something to you can virtue signal about to make you feel better about yourself. Well, all you virtue virtue signalers out there who got upset at Dan Soder because of what he, what he said and how he said it and what he did on that biography. I am here to tell you that Randy Savage would have given it his stamp of approval because in its own way, it put Randy over. Yes, it acknowledged that Randy is past. Yes, that's a sad thing. I think Dan said something to that effect. Yeah. But deep down inside, he was saying, yeah, but if Randy could have been involved, that would have been the way Randy wanted to go out. Guess what? I don't want to go out sitting in a fucking chair, falling asleep in my oatmeal. I want to go off the side of a cliff on a horse. I want to go up parachuting, skydiving, having sex. I want to go out doing something spectacular. I don't want to go out laying in a bed with a bunch of tubes running in and out of my veins, drooling on myself while the people around me weep. That's not my idea. My idea is to go out with a bang. You're going to go, go out memorable. That's what Dan was trying to say, I think, in his own in, in, incredibly funny way. But, you know, the people that got upset about it, or just getting upset because they feel it's incumbent upon them to be upset about something because they're better wrestling fans than anybody else. And how could you do that? Fuck you. Get upset about something that matters. I think Randy would have dug it. Uh, if you ever try to do a podcast with me again, and you haven't had the coffee, I'm just going to refuse to do it because once that <laughs> shit kicked in, we hit the fucking fifth gear, baby. And unfortunately that's the end of the episode. We're going to be back next week and be ready. Don't go watch the shows ahead of time. Watch them with us. We're going to watch raw and nitro from may 27th, 1996. So just a few days before the 25th anniversary of the very first time we saw Scott Hall in what will become known as the genesis of the NWO angle, but we're not just watching nitro. We're watching raw as well. So you get the full context of where the industry was. We're doing it all on Peacock. If you haven't already signed up for Peacock, watch along with us. This is the first time we've done something like this, watching two things, but I think there's no better way to really contextualize what the NWO did to the industry than just watch it again for the first time. 
Can't wait. Until next time, he is Eddie Bischoff. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. And I think we'll all spend the rest of the day thinking about what if Bobby Heenan led the crusade against the NWO? Great question. We'll see you next week, right here on 83 Weeks with Derek Bischoff. Oh, and stay tuned. Don't forget, Nick Patrick explains what really happened at Starcade 97. And we play that clip for Eric and get his response this week at adfreeshows.com. Saving money at savewithconrad.com is fast and easy. Just ask Jordan in Murfreesboro. He says, Jimmy made the entire process easy. No appraisal was needed. And we got a great rate on our refinance. What about Glenn up in Sperry, Oklahoma? He says, I wound up knocking four years off my loan and even saved a few dollars on my monthly payment. Easy to work with. Jimmy is the man. How much are you overpaying right now? Keep more of your own money at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. So wait, lower your monthly payments and pay your house off faster. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? At savewithconrad.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.